This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, friends. Hey, Alicia, we're back with another episode of Trashy Divorces. Hey, Stacey, welcome to another episode of Trashy Divorces. This week was really exciting. This week was pretty cool. Language of the kiss, lady writers. Sure, yes. But before before we talk about our lady writers, mm-hmm. let's go ahead and give some shout outs to let's our do. new Patreon people. Yep. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Bayou and Tana. You're awesome. Thanks, everybody. We really appreciate your support on Patreon. We're doing some fun stuff over there. Come check us out for as little as two bucks a month. Yep. Yep, lots of good stuff that we uh, we actually had a nice long recording session and they got totally busy getting the episode uh, ready. Kidding. So we've got some things to boot up in the next few days. We do, yeah. So lots of stuff coming on Patreon. So here's a tiny correction corner. Yeah, because were, we did. I yeah, we we, stuff. we did not. I went a little off the rails. Well, in my story, you are going to hear me talk of a very famous a magical world place. city, a magical place called Istanbul. Mm-hmm, that is not a real place. Where people cook with <laughs> instant pots and they order their groceries through Instacarts. I would uh, like the Istanbul special number four. Yes, no. it's a it's a meal. Istanbul. And, yeah. I didn't catch it until edit also. I caught it. It was funny. I screwed up with Nostrology. In my story, right. the final love story that you're going to hear is not mud. It is buried alive, which is even better for an archaeology joke, and I'm sad that I missed it. You know what? Since we made this thing up a few weeks ago, I think you can be forgiven. I'm not familiar with the new ways, with the new religion, but I'm getting there. I would like to say that I was taught how to do math in the public school system of the state of Alabama, and that explains why I don't know that the years from 1975 to 1986 are not 15. (laughs) One other thing. If you want to hear us banter, all the fun banter, you can check out Trashy Divorces. It was so exciting, Stacey. It really got... it really was. We were interviewed by the amazing Jeremy, who has, oh my God, like that guy's voice is oh, so, it was so much fun. He has such a beautiful voice. Anyway, so we talked to him for a long, long time, and he uh, trimmed it all down to make us sound great. Where, and, where uh, can our listeners find that if they want to hear our silly, silly banter it is and... A, who I'd take on a desert island. They can open up their podcast app and type in podcasts we listen to, which is the name of Jeremy, one of Jeremy's podcasts. It and, certainly is. And it was super fun and we really appreciate him having us on. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Yeah. And definitely check out podcasts we listen to. It's a awesome show. It really is. I mean, not about podcasts. Yeah. Any podcast you that you listen to, he like he interviews indie podcasters and like he's got this big catalog of just cool people who just are passionate about the things they're passionate about. It's great. We were flattered to be asked and had a delightful mm-hmm. time. So yeah. you can check us out there. Yep. So let's talk about the app this week. We have a cool show this week. We really do. Lady Writers, Language of the Kiss. Yes. Off of the best, one of the best albums, I think. Swamp Ophelia, Indigo Girls, 1994. Sure. Formative. Some brilliant songwriting. But when we looked at Lady Writers, I couldn't think of a better song with Language of the Kiss to theme the episode with. Who have you got this week? So I have um, 
contemporary genius legend icon Nora Ephron. She's so good. Who was married to sort of, you know, Watergate hero Carl Bernstein. You mean trash bag Carl Bernstein? Trash bag Carl Bernstein in the 70s. And I didn't know this story before, you know, before we were doing this podcast. It was really fun. And I was stunned by like the what you learned trashiness of the events so i watched some cool movies watched some cool documentaries read a bunch of stuff and nora efron is as great as i've always thought she was and you have for us uh the best-selling lady writer of all time you have a serious legend i have a serious legend the one and only agatha christie yep who exacted the most delicious divorce revenge on her husband i think the fun thing that we learned in this episode is uh don't mess with lady writers yeah that that's really i mean i think what happens and we again we saw this with tina turner we saw this with margaret mitchell's first husband was like there are great women in the world yeah there are who end up with mediocre men they don't end up with they they sojourn with um bad boy influence bad boy influence as you say in the episode the bbi's and uh, and then, you know, once they get free, they eclipse them in so Beyond. many ways. Uh, By a thousand percent. But we just keep seeing the same story over and over again, which tells me it's actually really common and normal. <laughs> just saying, don't tussle with girls. Don't tussle with smart, clever mm-hmm. girls who are especially writers, because yeah. we will yep. get you in the end. Yep. Anyway. So language or the kiss. It's a super fun up. You ready to do this? Ready to do this. Let's do it. I'll see you on the flip. Yep. Hope y'all enjoy. Hey, Stacey. Hey, Alicia. Hey. And we're back. Episode three. It is episode three. It's a mystery who I'm doing. Huh. Well, not <laughs> from you. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Okay. Yeah, I understand you've got a story from uh, England. I have such a good story this week. You ready? You look super excited. I'm so. super excited. Yeah, I, this one I know so little about, so please oh. tell me. Please tell me. Take off your vision enhancers. Right. Get ready to go. You might know Agatha Christie hmm. as the best-selling author of all time. Only behind the Bible I was, I was say and Shakespeare. Behind God, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. beat her in total <laughs> sales. Her minimum estimated book sales are $2 billion. She has written 66 detective novels, 14 short story collections, as well as the world's longest-running play, The Mousetrap celebrating its 65th year this year yikes she has created the fictional detectives two of my favorites hercule poirot and miss marple who i'm gonna grow up to be (laughs) she wrote six novels love stories under the pen name of mary westmacott and actually managed to keep that alias under wraps for 20 years wow in 1971 She was appointed a Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire for her contribution to literature. And that's how we see her, right? She's stately. She's a matronly grandmother type, just typing away and busily writing her little mysteries, (laughs) because that's probably the only thing she ever did, right? Yeah, right? Nope. Yep. Not even close. Really? She was one of the first English people ever to learn how to ride on a stand-up surfboard. And she was also involved in one of the trashiest divorce scandals 
in England. It's so good. Okay, and you're going to be telling us the surfboard story, right? Totally. Are you ready? Bring it. Agatha Mary Clarissa Miller is a Virgo baby, born on (laughs) September 15th, 1890 in Torquay, Devon. She's a Virgo. It totally makes sense. She likes things in boxes. Virgos are also earth signs. They're dependable. They're trustworthy. They're down to earth. Agatha's the youngest of three. I see you shaking your head. It's all you. Oh, wait on it. You know, astrology unbeliever. <laughs> it's going to come back and bite you in this one. Agatha is the youngest of three. She was a surprise baby. She has an older sister and an older brother who are 11 and 10 respectively when she's born. So she is the she's, super yeah, baby. Yeah, yeah. Agatha recalls a sunny, happy childhood. Her parents, Frederick and Clara, are a true love match. She is loved and doted upon. She is a super curious child who receives no formal education, even though her older siblings go to school. Mom and all of her female older relatives sort of walk on the wild esoteric side. They're empaths. They're psychics. And mom decides she needs to be homeschooled. And she's not allowed to read until she was eight. Okay, can you tell me again what year she was born? 1890. Okay, all right. So this is definitely like Victorian age. Sure. But mom, like the other kids are in school and mom has some sort of, nope, not you. Well, maybe. I mean, she's almost certainly going to be the last child. You know, I mean, 11 years on, like that. nobody saw that one coming. So, I don't know, maybe mom just wanted it's, to hold on tight to uh, the last to the last one. To the so, one. her homeschooling is romping around and being free and using her imagination, which is amazing. She has a favorite doll named Rosalind and her little do- terrier dog, George Washington, which leads her... Wait, sorry, her... Little terrier her, dog is named George Washington? Her, her, yeah, her dad's a, like an American. She's half American, so she has this very but. Gotcha. Okay, I've okay. Okay, so her favorite doll is Rosalind. Her puppy dog her puppy is George, is George Washington, Washington because it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so her family is super literate. They have books all around the house. So she teaches herself to read long before the age of eight. Surprise! She loves books. One icky thing that does happen in this sunny childhood is a recurring nightmare that she has about the gunman that shows up in these very happy spots in her dreams. She can be at a party for so-and-so, and there's this dark, mysterious gunman figure that maybe begins to explain deeper meanings of what's to come. I don't know. I just thought it was interesting in the research I did. Okay. Frederick, her dad dies when she is 11. And, of course, the family is financially impacted but they're still kind of trying to live the high life. At 15, 15, 1905, Agatha is sent to Paris to finishing school. Mm. She's a talented pianist and musician, but she's painfully shy. Okay, I said 1905. Mm -hmm. This is Belle Epoque, (laughs) the beautiful age in Paris, which runs from 1890 to 1914. This is an amazing time to be in Paris. And Agatha loves it. And she's being exposed to all this amazing culture, even though she hates La Tour Eiffel. All this culture is happening in this tiny section of time. Uh, sorry. 
The Eiffel Tower. Correct. Okay, sorry. La Tour Eiffel. Très bon. Okay. Très bon. I will do my best to translate for our listeners. <laughs> they know Poirot. So, at this time in Paris is a convergence of like writing and painting and dance and music and spectacle. And what an amazing time to be alive. Agatha is young and in the most sizzling place on earth. Please let my TARDIS land in 1905 Paris. Thank you very much. What's happening? 1905 is the Salon de Tom where Henri Matisse shows his lady in hat and causes a sensation and fauvism is created. The first underground public toilets open at Place de la Madeleine. The first England-France rugby match is played. Um, oh, I've moved to 1906. Hold on. The first airplane flight in, in Paris. 1907, first woman receives a license to drive a taxi in Paris. The first Paris roundabout traffic corner is mm-hmm. created at the Place de Toile. Pablo Picasso in the summer living in Montmartre at the Beehive, where he is from 1904 to 1910, paints Lem Dimswell's Avignon, which is a major turning point in art. The Conwaller Gallery opens. Holy crap. 1909, the first escalator is installed in the Paris metro station. I'm sorry. None of this is important, but it's just amazing. 1910, (laughs) Coco Chanel opens her first boutique at 21 Rue Cambon. Amazing. Also, not that it's important. Anything, the Great Flood of Paris happens in 1910. Anyway, I digress. I can talk about this period forever. It is amazing and my favorite. Anyway, Agatha stays in Paris until 1910 when her mom gets sick. And they move it on over to Cairo. It's a little cheaper there and maybe better for mom's health. Agatha, this is, she's 20, makes her debut into society there and receives four proposals before 1912. Hmm. But she is determined to marry only for love. She is a proper European-style debutante. She brings her music to play at parties because she plays piano. And she is delightfully making the debutante rounds in Egypt. Which is kind of fun when you watch Poirot and there's ladies playing and he does all. There's so much here that makes so much more sense to me now. Anyway, I'm leaving Agatha here for a moment because (laughs) now, guess what? I I really can't. We're going to meet Mr. Bad Boy Influence. Oh. BBI. Oh, BBI. Okay. BBI. Here he comes. Archibald Christie. Which you think it would be tough to be a bad boy influence when I'm like Archibald, but go figure. Well, it actually sounds like supervillain kind of. He is the Lex Luthor of this story. He was born September 30th. He's a Libra. He's an air sign. In 1889 in India, his dad is a barrister in the Indian civil service. His mom is 13 years junior to her husband. He has a brother. It's pretty standard stuff. Okay. Christie is sent to boarding school in England to be educated in 1901 when he is 11, just like Agatha, his dad dies. Oh, okay. Well, that's something to bond over. So, right, this parental death is probably something that bonds and connects them on some level. Two years later, Mom remarries the headmaster of a school and Archie is sent to complete his education there. He passes an entrance exam to the Royal Military Academy 
1909, is commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Royal Regiment of Artillery. Moving his way up. Lieutenant. Lieutenant. He wants to be a pilot. So he pays for private lessons at the Bristol Flying School in Brooklands. Not Brooklyn, Brooklands. <laughs> yeah. And gains his aviator's certificate in July of 1912. I bet the qualifications for that were not that. Are you afraid of dying? Yes. Pay us. Are you. No, he wasn't afraid of dying. So yet. afraid of dying that you won't fly this newfangled machine that shouldn't work? Yeah, I'll do it. Cool, <laughs> Here's your cool. certificate. You like have to go through some training. He's kind of a big deal. Here's how a stick works. <laughs> Archie masters his flying license oh. <laughs> and heads on back over to Cairo. This is just a suicide mission. By October. And fate has plans that await him. Lord and Lady Clifford are hosting a very fancy party. October the 12th. All I could think of was the big red dog. Nope. Not those Cliffords, the other Cliffords. Gotcha. <laughs> October 12th, 1912. And Agatha has been invited by the troop in this regiment. It's a very fancy party for their lining up of the troops. He gets sick. So him being a stand-up chap and all as his dude bro. Hey, Archie. Can you do a solid for me and escort this nice girl named Agatha to this party tonight? Helpless. It's on. Magic, moonlight, filled dance cards. It's a whirlwind romance. And for all of our nostrology believers, here comes a sandstorm. Archie is in the Royal Flying Corps. He is handsome. He drives a motorcycle. He's kind of a swashbuckler. Like, I can see it. He is gorgeous. He's a bad boy, and he looks like he would be a fun bad boy to have for a little while. Just saying. She is having her bad boy influence time, and mom <laughs> is sternly against him. Hmm. He is ruthless. He is a womanizer. He is not going to treat you well. Why are you wasting your time? He is going to burn you. Mama is a hard, firm, and most solid no on Archie. But young love and hormones are going to do what they're gonna, and they secretly get engaged. As you do. He's shipped off to war a few weeks later. He sees battle. Archie comes back for Christmas, 1914, as a different guy. They're on a train to see his parents. And Archie, you're going to learn this about him, has absolutely no timing at all. And is just warming up for his chicken leg game later on in their relationship. Hold on. That explanation's coming. But he picks right now, stuck on a train, with Agatha on their way to see his parents for Christmas Eve and Christmas right now to tell her, like, we can't get married. It's never going to work. I'm going to die in the war anyway. And what is the use of anything? Brilliant timing, dude. I don't I I don't quite know what to say. It's not a great train ride. <laughs> <laughs> and they're fairly pissy with each other by the time it ends. But, right, scene battle, PTSD in the middle of the night, he's knocking on our door, wait for it. He has some sort of weird change of heart, and he wants to get married that day, Christmas Eve. 
So they rustle up a license and a fucking vicar and pull the organist out of practicing for holiday services the next day. And they find someone they know from the local market like, oh, hey, hey, buddy, can you come be a witness? It's done at 24 Agatha's Mrs. Christie. Okay. She elopes and she doesn't even know. She's not even like Marla Maples who travels with a wedding dress on the ready. No, like she gets married in a coat and a purple velvet hat. Apparently, family consultation was not on the list pre-elopement because it's a surprise. Because you don't tell people you're going to elope. It's just an important rule of elopement. Yeah. Other- As elopements go. Otherwise, they want to be there and ruin it. So Totally it. Anyway, shit's hitting the fan about this news. Never let your family ruin your wedding. No. <laughs> by like, being there. Don't let people know you're going to, like, it's done. <laughs> done and done. If you're going to elope, comment. Otherwise, you're just too cheap to hold a wedding. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> shit's hitting the fan. Archie's mother takes to her bed. Like, she is beyond the pale. Agatha calls her house. And Madge, her older sister, answers. And after only the kind of laughter a big sister can do. Because, I mean, this is little sister comedy gold. Mm. You did what with who? (laughs) Little sister comedy gold, man. Madge is laughing her ass off. But reassures Agatha that, in fact... She promises to get everybody in the family worked out by the time she comes home with Archie. And Madge does, because older sisters are the best. Archie heads on back to war, and Agatha begins working as a volunteer nurse, which includes time in the operating theater, which is pretty shocking for a properly brought-up young lady. Some of the troops she cares for are Belgian refugees, and at this time, her uh, tiny graces begin to work on what would become one of her most famous characters. Sure. Hercule yeah. Poirot. The Belgian detective, yeah. Agatha also begins at this time working in the apothecary and hospital dispensary. She is learning a lot about poisoning, <laughs> which in the expanse of her career in writing... Poisoning is used over 50% of the time oh, interesting. as the means for murder. And she never gets it wrong because that's been her training. Sure. Her aptitude is so developed, she actually does well enough to qualify to take the Society of Apothecary Test. Anyway, throughout the war, Agatha is nursing, drugging. She's working on writing. She gains some helpful advice through a friend of a friend and actually begins writing in earnest. Big sister Madge steps in again. And challenges Agatha to write a detective story that Madge can't solve. Leave me surprised at the end. Interesting. And Agatha accepts the challenge and ends up writing The Mysterious Affair at Styles, a mystery featuring a soldier who on sick leave finds himself embroiled in a poisoning at a friend's estate. She pulls out all the Belgian troops and creates this Poirot. He's a gentleman. Treats the ladies well. He's intuitive. He's particular. The family takes a two-week vacation, and Agatha writes like her pants are on fire to create this book. Publishers reject it. She doesn't care. Archie ends up coming home. She quits her job. She sets up home. 
He's coming back for a desk job. This novel, which features Poirot, was rejected by six publishers before it gets published in 1920. Okay, okay. Fantastic. Archie's home. He's making about $50,000 a year. She has like a $10,000 a year trust legacy thing. They have a daughter who that, she names Rosalind. That seems like a, like a really comfortable Tons amount of, of money at the time. Yeah, okay. Tons of cash. Well, thanks, Rubes. Thanks, Ruby. Tons of cash. They have a daughter, Rosalind, named after her childhood favorite doll. They are running a respectable middle class household, but resentment is brewing. And now we're going to talk about and explore one of my favorite psychological theories called It's Not About the Chicken Leg. <laughs> you know about this. I Our do. Listeners do not. You should share. It's a good theory. Listeners, here in the South, some holidays seem to bring out the worst in families. All holidays seem to bring out the worst in families. It is a dangerous venture mm-hmm. to watch the television, the local television news on these holidays because inevitably... There's always a story about one member of the family committing an act of atrocious violence against another member of the family because they got in a fight over the last chicken leg. Or similar, yeah. Or who was going to walk the dog or who was going to change the channel. What they're fighting about doesn't matter. This isn't always just like (laughs) federally recognized holidays. It also occurs around football games here in the South. No, most of the time when you shoot each other a football, it's about the game. I like, think it, not, um, I'm pretty I'm, sure. I, mm, it might be the chicken wing there, but it's about. I think the percentage is a little skewed higher in shooting each other actually over the football game as it is to holidays. But that's a good percentage to measure one day. We'll have to do that. Science. The point is, <laughs> the fight is about something so trivial. It is never what the fight is about. People do this all the time in love and in divorce. And when you're fighting, it sometimes only takes a minute to really figure out what you're fighting about because it's never the chicken leg or the dog or the remote control. Right. It's the 15 years of bubbling resentment. Wise people halt a little to ponder like, what's at the heart of that? But sometimes this is not people on holidays in the Southland. They tend to make this go violent early and often, but on a lot of non-holidays, it just manifests itself into a very dark, passive-aggressive energy, and we're not working for the light here. That is the description of the chicken leg theory. I shall continue. Okay. Archie decides to resent her weight. I guess before she had a baby, she had a super hot bod, which is no longer that way, because, you know, baby's childbirth. Yeah. And he's bored at home and takes to staying at work super long hours and wants her to stay beautiful. And again, had your child and maybe you can fuck right off. And maybe you have impossibly high standards, but I digress. There are undercurrents of things happening. But good news. Agatha finds out that a publishing company wants to publish her book. Great. Woo! And it's a super crap bad contract, but she doesn't care because she doesn't read it. She signs it because at 30, she's a published author and got 25 pounds. Oh, my God. For the mysterious affair at Styles. She got fucked. Five book deal. Fucked. I know. Hold on. But Archie encourages her to write, 
with like financial motives in mind. Like, whoa, you're writing books. They're really catching on. And Archie in some sort of benevolent, benevolent, benevolent. there we go, benevolent mood, or maybe some kind of last ditch try, takes Agatha along in 1922 on his 10-month tour to promote the forthcoming British Empire Exhibition, which is to be held at Wembley in 1924 and 1925. Is this like a World's Fair kind of thing? Indeed, oh. quite so. <laughs> so he's... Archie's job is to promote this thing. So there's a 10-month tour. Agatha goes all over the Dominions. New Zealand, Africa, Oh, Hawaii. right, right, right. They go okay. everywhere. Okay. At, this, at, at every step that they go, the couple gets progressively more capable at riding surfboards. Some historians <laughs> believe they may have been the first British surfers to learn how to ride standing up. Because Agatha Christie's a badass. And has always loved the sea. Like, she spends her summers, she loves to, the ocean, she loves to swim and surfing. Totally her jam. Hang loose, Agatha. Yeah, that is an unexpected detail that uh, is Dude, charming as hell. you think of her as, like, grandma, but no. Nah, I may be a little chubby, but I can stand up on this surfboard and ride it. Yeah. Anyway. On this tour, kind of towards the end, Archie gets sick, and they end up staying in Canada, Canada, (laughs) and the rest of the group travels ahead, and once Archie recovers, they return home. The epic world tour is over, and things kind of suck. Archie has no job, they're broke, and their three-year-old daughter does not remember them. Oh my god. But she writes, and involves herself in various activities, like a proper lady does, For instance, at the beginning of 1925, Agatha was invited to participate in a children's charity committee, along with a friend of the family, a very young, smart gal named Nancy Neal. Just make a note. Oh, why do I have a feeling? Just make a note. She's going to come up again. Post a note. Ding. Agatha's writing is taking off. She cranks out books four, books five. She completes her contract. She buys a car. She's getting a little financial freedom, which is probably nice. Archie gets a step down of a job. Agatha's supporting the family. And Archie does not like being the man behind the woman. Yeah. Now that her five crap-ass book contract is over, she gets smart. She gets an agent. She signs a real deal. Her percentage goes up a thousand percent. (laughs) She's making substantially more cash. They move to a golfing community. No. Yep. Okay. At the beginning of 1926, Christy and Agatha jointly buy a large house in Sunningdale that they call Styles. Archie, still working all the time, playing a lot of golf, not around a lot. She's trying to entice him to, like, get into her, get into life. Let's go on vacation. He's like, nah. You smell the chicken frying? You smell it. You smell it. In April of 1926, Agatha's beloved mother dies. Ooh. Archie, master of timing, promptly packs his bags and leaves on a business trip. Oh, my God. For several months. Agatha moves back to her childhood home, Ashfield, to sort and pack all of her mother's stuff and clean up that house. And in August, guess who shows up? On his motorcycle. Little Mr. Bad Boy. Archie comes to visit. And old Archie 
master of timing himself, breezes in. On in with some news. Just so you know, Agatha. I have a thing with Nancy Neal going on. And I have been finding great relief in my war recuperation by playing golf with her on the daily. Hmm. And also we're having a tour de fair. I was going to say golf. And by the way, I want a divorce. Wow. So that's August. Agatha doesn't take this news well at all. Really? I have trouble seeing how. No, you got it. So you see the last chicken leg on the platter on the table, Mm -hmm. right? It's coming. Setting the scene. Friday, December 3rd, 1926. Agatha leaves her daughter with a nanny, kisses her little forehead, leaves a note for her assistant like, hey, I'm out for the night. I'll let you know where I end up tomorrow. Agatha's car is found abandoned in a super bleak, remote, desolate area near near Guilford. The lights are on in the car. Her battery is run down. Her driver's license is in there. So is her fur coat. And it is not exactly a random place to ditch a vehicle. Can't be seen from the road. Could it be that this place was in fact carefully chosen? The police find this. Head on over to Styles. Her assistant's like, yeah, she left this letter. Like, And this is near water, right? It is near some lakes, yes. So is the presumption that she went and drowned herself? Hold on. Okay. So <laughs> the assistant's like, yeah, she left this letter and the police are searching for it. The police have to go search for Archie, who they find having spent the whole weekend with his mistress, Nancy Neal. Savory character there. They don't know she's wandering around a remote countryside where there are numerous gravel pits to fall into. Oh my God. Did she go off to commit suicide? Is this a public relations stunt or welcome true crime? Did Archie kill her? The lakes are dredged. There are airplane searches. 15,000 people are out looking. Bloodhounds. This goes on for days, 11 days. It is a scandal. Half of England is out searching for her and whoa, baby, Archie is getting destroyed in the press. Apparently, Agatha left him a letter that he threw in the fireplace before anyone could get a chance to read it. By the middle of the following week, I know your eyes are so big. It's amazing. Do I need to stop? Do you need to take a breath? It gets better. It's so good. I can't wait to, like, but th- that is, I mean, if she planned that, that's brilliant. Okay, so Okay, so continue. in the middle of the following week, authorities are no longer expecting to find her alive. I bet. Those are the quotes in the press. Oh, Archie's affair comes tumbling out. He is mortified. The heat is on. Well, he's suspected of murder by uh, yeah. more, more than a few people, correct? Yeah, okay. She's gone. Like, it's been a week and a fucking half. Well done, Archie. Where the hell? Well done, Agatha. Well, so, yes, yes. <clears throat> Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm. <clears throat> he of Shakespeare. Shakespeare. No. <laughs> he of Sherlock Holmes fame reassures the, author the public. Of, the author of Macbeth. <laughs> <laughs> reassures the England. <laughs> That Agatha is alive. He uses all of his psychic powers. And you'll find her by Wednesday. She's actually found on a Tuesday. So where has she been? Agatha, it turns out, right? She leaves December 3rd. 
checks herself into the Swan Harrogate Hydropathic Hotel in Harrogate, Yorkshire. How far is that from Guilford? Oh, like an hour and a half. Like it's it's a train ride. Like okay. she checks herself in the following morning. It could be four. I don't know. Yeah. How far is it on foot? <laughs> no, she catches a train. She takes a train to Harrogate. She checks herself in the spa as Mrs. Teresa Neal. And she jaunts around Harrogate. She's in spa treatment. She's drinking. She's dressing up. Oh, oh, oh. I did read this thing. She's got this fanny pack. And she, like, she's Ted Mosby with the fanny pack and, like, travels around town, like, does her shopping, whatever. The press and the country are on a high fucking alert for a week and a half. And finally, after whatever, 11 days, two members of the hotel band recognize her. And instead of calling the press, they call the police. There's a hundred pound reward that they could have called for, but they're like, no, 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 let's call the police who have the actual sense to call Archie Christie to get his ass to Harrogate to recognize right. her because there have been a few false nabs of not Agatha's in the previous <laughs> days. And by now the police aren't taking any chances. <laughs> Isn't this the most amazing story ever? Although if you're Archie, like by the third one, aren't you just like, yeah, that's her. No, I don't think they called him before. They're finally like, okay, we think this is a live one. So Archie sweeps in. Yep, that's her. Agatha does not appear to recognize him. She has on her fancy dress clothes and ever so politely introduces herself. Hello, I am Teresa Neal. She walks out of the hotel smiling. It's a photo op. They're photographed parading away from the hotel. Nancy Neal's parents are fucking mortified and send her away until the scandal dies down. Archie. (laughs) Archie. Mm -hmm. In his explanation to the press, now that he's not a murderer, says she suffered a fugue state break and she had amnesia. She doesn't remember anything. From this point on, Agatha detests this bit of notoriety. She maintains a revulsion for the press and journalists throughout the rest of her life. She took plenty of pictures with family, and while traveling, she disliked (laughs) having her photo appear on dust jackets of her novels and once insisted they be issued without a likeness attached. She did not want to be recognized. Agatha never discusses this. It is verboten. Her daughter never hears her talk of it. There's an author who believes that in her Mary Westacott novels, there's a little bit of this in there. But what does happen? Speculation warning coming. Let's break down that chicken leg. I know you have your ideas about the disappearance of Agatha Christie. So before I begin my speculation, Stacey, I would like to ask you what you think happened to Agatha Christie in that mysterious December 3rd mm-hmm. to December 14, 15, 14th, 14th, 1926 break. Well, it's, you explain it? it's not what I think happened. It's what happened. Oh, science. It's yes. history. Okay. okay. So okay. there was, there was a garden party. <laughs> and Doctor Who. Was Ricky Nelson there? And no, it was Doctor Who. And Donna land in the TARDIS to attend. Donna Noble? Donna Noble likes uh, that period. Her. And She's they are one of my favorites. 
They are super chuffed She's that uh, Agatha Christie's there. It's hey, 100%. 100%. Chuffed. Thanks. That thanks. Great. So, um, also, though, it turned into a bit of a mystery because sure. there was a famous jewel thief at the party. Uh, uh, you know, no, no one knew who it was. So it was. Well, it's a British house party. One, British exactly. aristocracy house party. And. Which actually, beyond poisoning like country house setting closed group of circles it that episode there was poisoning i'm sorry that history science yes actually does that absolutely fall into the classic triumvirate of what british detective novels i think what you mean is that documentary i saw that is correct what is it called the wasp and the unicorn is the episode the, the unicorn is the jewel thief the wasp is 10 feet tall and it is a documentary by Doctor Who. Sure. So Agatha Spin- solves the crime. Basically, yes. Um, vanquishes Perfect. the ten the ten foot tall wasp, Match. and um, and then Doctor Who and Donna take her off in the TARDIS to end up at the hotel in Harrogate. There's your fan fiction. Well, it's a time Sorry. machine. <laughs> God, can you only imagine where Agatha went? I wish we had that story. It's a fair question. Anyway, but yeah, they Doctor Who wiped her memory because it would be weird, but stuff still came totally out. Totally be weird. <laughs> but stuff came out in her books. And we learned that she was still being published in the year 2 billion or whatever. So, I Thank mean, you. really, it was just a, it was a great documentary. Thank I you, Stacey, really for laying down the real documentary yeah. truth about that. Yeah, I don't know what lies you're going to tell, but that was, that. but that's what happened. She so, spent that period in the TARDIS. So maybe we do a poll this week because I have a few other suppositions. This again, speculation. I mean, rank lies, but go ahead. Spank, speculation. Speculation. Jesus Christ. Rose. Rose. Okay. <laughs> Angry Agatha. She is mad, and it is not about the chicken leg. There, I, I've read a lot about all the different threads that this could be. So apparently, she sends a note to her brother-in-law. That she's going to a spa. She has this sort of, I'm going to disappear, but I'm going to mail a letter so someone knows where I am in two or three days, and my brother-in-law will tell my husband. But the brother-in-law doesn't get the news that she's missing when he gets the note two or three days later, and he's like, fuck do I care that Agatha's in a spa in Harrogate? So what's with the car? And tosses a letter. Well, the brother-in-law never gets the news that she's missing. So he gets the where the fuck is she letter and tosses it, never calls his brother. <sighs> yeah, no, I'm just curious why her, like, why was her car abandoned and her, right? Like, okay. So she sends some parcels along the way to Teresa Neal. Like her goal was 48 hours of don't, don't you miss me? She wanted him to stress. Like, the brother would get the note, throws it away. She's in Harrogate after three days, like, oh, no. All the guests are talking about this is out of hand. And once the plot is set, like, the best of well-laid intentions, right? Like, I had my own passive-aggressive chicken thing, chicken leg thing that I was going to do, but whoa. Revenge is a powerful force. And it is really hard for me to avoid thinking that this was her purpose. She could have killed him, but that would have been inconvenient. So this way, she marks him for life 
without ever having to fire a shot. Done. I have tarred and feathered you. You are an adulterer. You are a cheater. You are an everything. She, despite the cost of searching for her, was never charged with a public nuisance. Oh, wow. It is Agatha Christie's finest mystery story, and it will never be solved. And I fucking love it. Ten-foot wasp. (sighs) And traveled on the TARDIS. So somewhere between all of that is really what happened. So in April, Agatha files for divorce. She retains custody of Rosalind and the name Christie for her writing because she's kind of famous under it now, which I'm sure burns him like crazy. Must, yeah. But wait on it. Archie, master fucking timing, that asshole. Archie and Nancy, hold on. June 10th, Gemini air sign. They float. They're both air signs. They float away together. Get married two weeks after the divorce is final. Not a big surprise, to be honest. They do live happily ever after. Like, they lived a quiet, happy, floating away life. He stays really undercover. Like, he does business, but... There's weird parallels between our... Oh, sto- really? Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. It's it's funny. I, I mean, I'm, yeah. No, Christy stays undercover. Like, he and Nancy stay married. Right. For the rest of their lives until her death. He dies like four years later. Uh, Christy does stay in contact with Rosalind. In an interview in the Times later, she says, eventually my father would marry Nancy Neal and they lived happily together until she died. I saw him quite often and we always liked and understood one another. So, yeah. like he apparently wasn't a crap father, but she was much closer to her mom. Sure. So what happens to Agatha? What happens to huh, Agatha? In 1928, at 38, Agatha is a, oh, the single ladies. She's ready to do this. Rosalind's at school. She is churning out writing work to, you know, make money to live. And she's doing great. She goes to another one of those faded parties in the stars and sits next to a dude who ends up talking about all of the archaeological digs happening in the Middle East. This is right 20s and 30s in mm-hmm. England, and it's a big thing. The next day, she's like, yeah, I think I'm going to start a whole new adventure and heads off to Istanbul on the Orient Express. And voila, just watch her go. She ends up aligning with Leonard Woolley and his wife. His wife is a huge fan. Leonard Woolley is like a big-ass archaeologist. His wife is a huge fan, and she kind of hooks it up with them and hightails it around Egypt on their archaeological dig. On her second trip over, when she's still late 30s, she meets 25-year-old junior archaeologist Max Mallowin, hmm. who acts as her tour guide on her hmm. second trip. Hold on. Later on at dinner parties, when you do the, how did you meet? This uh-huh. is the best story ever. I love it. He says, yeah, six days in, we saw a pool of water walking. Agatha was hot and undressed to her pink underwear and jumped in. I was in love then. Like, he loved her spontaneity. He provides to her a real support. They have a tremendous love match. Hold on. He's May 6th. He's a Taurus. He's an Earth sign. So they're both Earth. Mud, which in this case is totally fitting. And you say astrology is bogus because they're archaeologists. (laughs) They marry in 1930. Each lies on the marriage certificate about their age. She appears to be younger. He makes himself older. Friends are scandalized. 
Because there's 14, 15 years well, between yeah, them. Well, yeah, like, I, hey, cougar. Yeah, right. What the fuck are you doing? But Agatha's like, I get to go on adventures. And where Archie didn't want to read my books, Max in Egypt writes a way to buy all of her books to read them, to talk with her about them. Like, he, double earth, they're mud. They're archaeologists. Ah. <sighs> <laughs> They stay married until her death at the age of 86 in 1976. Max is super impressive in his own right. Malawan is appointed commander of the Order of the British Empire in the 1960 Queen's Birthday Honors. He is knighted in 1968. Dame Agatha Christie and he were among a number of married couples, each of whom held knightly honors in their own right. Hmm. <sighs> so many years fill between then and there. She really does get a happy ending, even though times go up and down. Agatha's my favorite line in the whole thing. Agatha says about Max, an archaeologist is the best husband any woman can have. The older she gets, the more interested he is in her. Go girl. In the 1930s, she's cranking out two or three books a year. That's just amazing. She goes, no, she goes on digs in the winter. She proofreads in the spring. She summers by the sea. In the autumn, she's doing final proofs, and it starts all over again. Things get a little rocky in 1939, as you know, World War II. There was some financial crap with the American IRS, and she's working her tail off, like pretty much not to become bankrupt. It all eventually works out, and she ends up through her later decades, like she through the 40s is cranking it out just to meet the financial need but after that she does not she's like one book a year is fine and her thought philosophy is i have enough money not to worry about what i need and be generous and not so much that those bastards can take it <laughs> like i don't need to make three books a year right. that's just more for you to take right one book a year is enough for me to live on and i love her and she is so plucky Agatha lived a long, adventure-filled, and amazing life, and she is a trashy divorce's success story, <laughs> for sure. She should be our poster girl. Archie is first up for the Bad Boy Influence poster in the Trashy Husbands magazine. Seriously, bad timing, bad actions. I hate him. <laughs> when you know better, you do better, and get on with yourself, Agatha. You used all your little gray cells to realize that dude was a creep. And extracted a pretty amazing revenge without violence. And très bon to you. Very, very nice. That's an Agatha Christie story. Did I breathe at all during that? That was the most fun I've ever had. Love trashy divorces. (laughs) No, I feel like this episode could be subtitled um, Bad Timing, Bad Actions. So, (sighs) And Big Sisters rock. Way to go, Madge. Actually, yeah, because my subject is the big sister. Ah, is it really? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it when we find different connections that we never thought. All right. That's my Agatha Christie. That's your Christie. Agatha Christie story. Are I've, we going to save trash cans until the end? We're going to save trash cans to the end. Perfect. Let's we're take a break. Sum these up. I guess in light of each other, I think I think that's the idea. Is that we're take gonna, a break. Take a breath. Take a break. All right. We will be right back. Thank you for that. Oh, my God. It was so much fun. Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and 
I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Hey, Stacy. I have poured another glass of wine. I have taken my vision enhancers off because pressure's off me. Yeah. I think I can take a breath now. I think you should take a breath now. And I really want to hear your trashy divorce for the week. What you got? Well, I have the very trashy and very, very public divorce of Nora Ephron and Carl Bernstein. Seriously? Yeah. They were married. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Really? Really. Um, Okay, okay. Tell. tell, uh, All right, let me set this up. I like Watergate. I have. Tinfoil hat conspiracy uh, uh brain is just going. Talk to me. Okay, well, I have have a present for you. I love presents. Is Um, it a TARDIS? It is not a TARDIS. (laughs) It is, however, the birth dates of Nora Ephron and Carl Bernstein. So Are you, you becoming can... a believer in astrology? No, I just know you love this stuff. <laughs> okay, so. talk to me. <laughs> uh, she was born on May 19th. Okay, Taurus. Yes. And he was born on February 14th. Oh, Aquarius. Okay. Okay. Alicia. Yeah. I know you're a Hamilton fan. A hundred percent. Do you remember that part in Hamilton where the married treasury secretary 
Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton. Writes out a long confession about an affair that no one had accused him of having oh, in order to protect his reputation. Of which no one has accused you. As a money manager. The Reynolds pamphlet. And managed to blow up his career and his family. Oh, God. All at the fireworks. So um, the ugly, ugly split between Nora Ephron and Carl Bernstein is kind of like the mirror image of that. Oh, she blows it up. Let's Bigly. go. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> All right. So Nora Ephron was born in New York City, but raised in Beverly Hills, California uh, by, Beverly Hills. by her screenwriter mom and dad. There were four daughters in total, all of whom have careers in words like God and their mama intended. Where is she in birth order? Top. Nice. She's, She's mad. She's the oldest sister. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, her mother, Phoebe, taught the whole brood very early that everything is copy. Like, you fall down and scuff your knee, it's copy. copy. Yeah. Fall you, down. Sh- yeah. Your, your yeah. life is your story. Yep. Yep. Way to go, um, Phoebe. So the parents often recycled family incidents, like the time one of the kids got her head caught in the in the stair railing. You know how kids do? Like Julia Sugarbaker on and Designing Women? the Beverly Hills police had to come and, like, no. cut away the wrought <gasps> iron... Anyway, so uh, everything is coffee. So this this ended up in a Jimmy Stewart movie they were working on at the time. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Uh, so it was that kind of childhood. Uh, Nora developed an interest in journalism in high school, and she worked on the student papers there and in college. Good for her. She graduated from Wellesley College in really? 1962. Okay, with a degree in political science. She moved to New York City. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not even a real science degree. <laughs> Secretary Kerry, you're bringing your pseudoscience degree I'm in front saying, of this committee. Eight twenty second interlude. That is the best that John Kerry has ever been. If he had done that in two thousand four, oh yeah, he'd be president. Be honest, he, dude, he would have been, yeah. been president. That was amazing. Mm-hmm. You've got to be is kidding this me right now. Really happening? <laughs> Seriously, I loved it. Okay. Anyway. We digress. Off topic. Um, (laughs) Nora Ephron graduated from Wellesley College in 62 with a degree in political science, moved to New York City. It's not even a real degree. And found a job at Newsweek as a male girl. It's the greatest city in the world. Wasn't then. Male girl is a tough gig. In 1962, Newsweek didn't hire women to be writers. And they told her so at the interview. Really? They were like, why do you want the job? And she was like, because I want to be a a journalist. Yeah. And they were like, oh, don't worry. We don't hire (gasps) women journalists. You will be a male girl. And she was like, oh. So whatever. And they also didn't hire men to ferry messages around the Manhattan offices. They... (laughs) It was very, very segregated. So she takes the job. It pays like 55 bucks a week. Ouch. Well, yeah, but you could afford to live in Manhattan. Yeah, in 19. 19- yeah, a week. holy shit. <laughs> Which, hello, is why generations of talented people flocked to New York City. Yeah, it's the greatest city in the world. Because there was opportunity and you could afford to live there. I'm trying to remember what year Helen Gurley Brown put out her book. It was right around that time. So this is birth control pillage just getting legalized. We are on the forefront of the feminist revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, okay. which Nora Ephron went on to document, explore, interrogate, um, and I don't know, like just kind of be part of in Talk to me. the pages of Esquire later on. I love it. This is one of my favorite 
writing life stories I think that I'll ever know. I just learned it researching the story. In December of 1962, and this lasted through March of 63, the Typographical Union in New York State went on strike. Or in New York City. Really? Meaning that none of the newspaper presses were running. It it specifically targeted four papers, the Times and a few others. And then the five other major papers, the Post, the, like, voluntarily stopped publishing, presumably to, to back up the union solidify the yeah yeah and to and to ultimately not be targeted by the strike so they're not releasing any papers no newspapers what from like december 4 to march the post jumped back in on like march 3rd but the strike ended march 31st holy cats yeah uh, amazing okay so void of newspapers and again no internet there was no it's not like i don't know where people were getting their news like, a bunch of alternative papers came up, but it's not like... I think if you were a reporter at one of the papers that was being targeted, you probably sided with the union, too. Like, I don't know. This is just seems unbelievable. To, like, it's hard to it's hard to picture that kind of thing happening. The daily newspaper stops. Yeah, all of them. Oh, world turned upside down. It really is. Okay, so, nature abhors a vacuum. So, sure. uh, Victor Novosky, a... Uh, gentleman who went on to become the an editor at the New York Times Magazine and later The Nation, okay, is married to a classmate, a Wellesley classmate of Nora, and knows her. They know seven each other. Seven sisters, we are the seven sisters. He was a Yale man himself. And oh. while, while he was at Yale, he sure. had founded a satirical newspaper called Monocle. So no papers are being printed. He's like, you know, he talks to some friends, pulls together 10 grand. Y'all have time on your hands. Well, and he's like, yo, let's make some spoof editions of the New York newspapers that are not being published right now. Satire for the win. Woo, woo, woo. So Nora Love Efron it. signs on. Yeah, they do the uh, the New York Pest. <laughs> the New York Dilly News, which I'm sure was full of pickle recipes. I'm not sure. Oh, this is fantastic. Yeah. So, <laughs> so he gives, he knows Nora's a writer. He gives her a call and, you know, she's like totally in hundred percent. She writes uh, a satire of the, the New York Post's society columnist at the time. I think the guy's name was Leonard Lyons. So she writes yeah. a satire of these like, oh, like completely useless, just, just various anecdotes Watching strung together with. Yeah, without you meaning. You never should have started me on Hamilton. Now I'm in. You, you're never not into Hamilton. That's true. Go ahead. Okay. The people at the Post were the not <laughs> happy. No. They were furious. They were going to sue. Super mad. They, what? Like, they were going to sue the people who did this parody paper. I'm not sure on what grounds, but they were Your parody furious. is too good. Mm-hmm. The owner of the post, Dorothy Schiff, was like, she sat him down and was like, listen, you guys are idiots. If these people are good enough to parody the post, these people are good enough to write the post. Go hire them. Who is this? Dorothy Schiff? Dorothy Schiff. Lady Mm -hmm. journalist. So in an essay uh, years later, Efron wrote, I had four bylines my first week. Like, this poor woman for over a year, I think, had been working at Newsweek. Like, is in the fucking mailroom. 
Yeah, as a male. Yeah, and then later she was like Jeez. clipping bits out of local newspapers. Then she was a research assistant, like fact checking. Uh-uh. Yeah, it was. And now just she gets four bylines in a week. Four bylines in yeah. a week. She interviewed. I, I quoting. I interviewed the actress Tippi Hedren. I went to the Coney really? Island. Really aquarium to write about two hooded seals that were refusing to mate oh i interviewed an italian film director named nanny loy i covered a murder on west 82nd street holy cats this is amazing yeah so nora efron was at the post for five years and gotta tell you she was totally a murderino before it was cool Mm -hmm. so i watched the documentary everything is copy that um, her son, uh, she and Carl Bernstein's son, Jacob, made. And Aww. there's a clip in it where she's talking to... Is it like a tribute to his mom? Ish. Ish. It's, uh, it's an exploration of... Everything she is She was copy. a complicated figure. Okay, uh, so in the documentary, Everything is Copy, she, there's a clip of her talking to an audience about having so much fun covering murder scenes for the post that yeah. she was sometimes afraid the police would arrest her. For just, like, being inappropriately bubbly. Being inappropriately interested? Tell me what's going on. Yeah, and what, like, grieving family, like, shocked neighbor, all of that. And she is having the time of her life just, like, writing stuff on a notebook. Oh, I so much more. Yeah, she covered everything for the... I mean, she... They could just, like, point her at a thing, and she did great work. So she covered the Beatles. She covered Bobby Kennedy. She covered Johnny Carson. She learned how to be a journalist and a writer at The Post... It's amazing. The copy editors would come over and explain to her what they were changing and why. Like, it was just a very thorough... So she learned as she went along. Yeah. 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 Which is kind of how she did everything in her life. as how girls do. Which is how girls do. It's how girls do. And again, she had worked at newspapers in high school and college, so, you know, but this was a a big city newsroom. I want to... They were publishing eight editions a day or something between... Two in the afternoon and 11 at Seriously? night or something. It was crazy. Yeah, reporters would like phone in their... Reporters were just wandering the city. Da-da, da-da. Just kidding. And da-da, when something da-da. happened... New hot take. Yeah, they'd like call in from a payphone. And there were, you know, rewrite people, many of whom were what women. What years were this? Like, it's almost like news was it's happening like as fast as it is now. Is this early, three, late 60s? Oh, okay. 63 through 67, 68. Okay. Yeah, she was there for five years. The crime rate in New York City, though, at the time was enormous. Astronomical. Yeah. So yeah. I'm sure that there was a lot. Sure, there was a lot. Hey, I'm your cheerful murderino reporter to get the scoop. Talk to me. Right. You, at some point, she's got to know most of the cops she's encountering at I murder scenes. It. This and it's, is amazing. They've got to just be like, oh, fuck, it's her again. <laughs> Tell her to tone it down. So this education and how to write and how to do journalism, and how to be a journalist. Invaluable. Um, ultimately led her to Esquire magazine, where she had a column and, you know, did did journalism as well. And, you know, her byline appeared next to luminaries like Gay Talese, James Baldwin, Tom Wolfe, Joan Didion, Norman Mailer, Ernest Hemingway, Joyce Carol Oates. Like, that is amazing. Fantastic. Okay, so I'm going to you know, spoil the ending here, but okay. um, unfortunately, Nora Ephron passed away in 2012. And Newsweek, you know, her first <laughs> boss, her first unappealing boss, had this has this great. We'll have it in show notes. It's a fantastic article about her life and but it, uh, of her work at Esquire. It says by the late 60s, Ephron had begun to make a name for herself as a writer for Esquire 
and New York, I think New York Magazine. Her memory-challenged lament, a few words about breasts, refined, no, invented a new genre, the self-deprecatory essay that means it. And this from the outlet that would not let her write. So Wow. Um, she was ultimately part of a class action lawsuit against Newsweek that forced them to... Really? Mm-hmm. Forced them to change how they hired and... Uh, yeah. How they hired women? Well... Because women, believe it or not, are an equal part of the workforce. <laughs> Even in the law at that Surprise! time. Mm-hmm. In 1967, she married a comedic writer named Dan Greenberg, who had a... He's had a lot of bestsellers, and I had never heard of him. His big bestseller, I think, is called How to Be a Jewish Mother. Really? Yeah, um, but he was just a—he was like a funny writer, uh, funny novelist. Had he's published, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of books. Seems like a neat guy too. But I think they kind of grew apart because Nora Ephron was like amazingly outgoing and sociable, and would like see a celebrity and just walk up to them and say, "Hi, I'm Nora Ephron. Would you come to a party at my house?" Right, and like. They all did. That was not Dan Greenberg. <laughs> it was. I don't think so. They had an amicable split. How long were they married? About seven years. Okay. Although I think that they actually split up well before. I think the divorce happened at the seven-year mark. Okay. Seven-year itch. But it sounds like she was dating Carl Bernstein oh, prior. by that time. But no kids. No kids. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they... Like, society had taken notice of... Nora Ephron, and she was a like fantastic party host, a fantastic party guest. All right, on the topic of Dan Greenberg, though, I have to, I have to, so, you know, she wrote a book about ultimately her breakup with Carl Bernstein called Heartburn that became a movie. Sure. And I have to bring up the thing about hamsters. So in the book Heartburn, Dan, first husband, is written as Charlie. Okay. Everybody got new names, and so of Charlie, she wrote, my first husband was so neurotic, he kept hamsters. They all had cute names like Arnold and Shirley, and he was very attached to them and was always whipping up little salads for them with his slice-o-matic and buying them extremely small sweaters at a pet boutique in Rigo Park. Hamsters don't really do that much, but Charlie had built an entire character for Arnold and made up a lot of hamster jokes he claimed Arnold had come up with, mostly having to do with chopped lettuce. (laughs) Also, and I'm sorry to tell you this, Charlie often talked in a high, squeaky voice that was meant to be Arnold's. Nobody. And I'm even sorrier to tell you that I often replied in a high, squeaky <laughs> voice that was meant to be Shirley's. Right? As a pet owner. Is it time to talk about what voices belong to ma, each of our pets? Ma. <laughs> She goes on to describe how Charlie was heartbroken upon Arnold's death and had Arnold cryogenically oh, frozen. No! And then stored him in the what? freezer of the house. No. Okay. No, 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 no. Nobody, so, no, really? It is a hilarious yarn that, according to Dan Greenberg, is entirely invented. He says he's never kept hamsters. He loves cats. But it is a great joke i mean just so good anyway so when i watched she just replace hamster for cat did he i don't think so no 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 i don't think that happened at all but (laughs) no it's just a great it no it reminds me of the the joke telling that my grandfather and my father would do like they it was just this these long drawn out things that get 
like wilder and what and eventually you're like you are like pulling my leg yeah 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 yeah. anyway great joke so (sighs) okay cool 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 okay it's the 70s okay wait a minute okay okay hamsters okay can you hold on one second (laughs) Dead hamster in the freezer. <laughs> Writing my screenplay. <sighs> so. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. It is the 70s. It's the 70s. Yeah, singer-songwriter generation. Rapier-witted Nora Ephron is a single, accomplished writer with a column in Esquire, and she is ready to mingle. Living on top of the world. So, who should she meet at a party? But one Carl Bernstein. Top famous journalist. Co-hero of Watergate, co-slayer of crooked presidents, and a legitimate celebrity. What year is this? It's early 70s. Post-Watergate. Okay. Oh, after Watergate's already Mm -hmm. fallen down. All the president's men has happened. Yeah. So he is apparently just a wildly charismatic guy and tons of fun to be around life of the party. Just wild and crazy guy. Which is, all of those things are true of Nora, too. So they gangbusters. They hit, hit it, it off. off. Yeah. Um, he also already had quite the reputation for womanizing, but love is blind and hope springs eternal and all of that. So in 1976, they got married and they were a power couple among the intelligentsia. One interesting factoid about the marriage. Okay. You're going to love this. Oh, God. During it, Nora read Carl's Watergate notes. And knew that Deep Throat, MF, in his notes, was Mark Felt. And apparently she shared this information with everyone. <gasps> She's Martha Mitchell. Everyone yeah. for decades. Because Mark Felt didn't like come out as Deep Throat no, until 05. Yeah, uh, 2000s. But yeah, so whatever. You've got Nora, like famous person Nora Ephron <gasps> wandering around like, yeah, it was Mark Felt. Totally yeah, Mark Felt. I cool. read his notes. It's Mark Felt. Yeah, I was married to him. I read his notes. It's Mark Felt. Nobody, like, the press loved the mystery of it, I guess. And I guess Mark Felt had denied it as well. Anyway, just an interesting... Wow. So, yeah, the mystery of Deep Throat. She gave a speech at... Oh, no. (laughs) One of her son's colleges. Secrets revealed. Every time she gave a speech, somebody would raise their hand and be like, do you know who Deep Throat is? And she would be like, yeah, Yeah, it's Mark Felt. Oh, Jesus. Her son's (laughs) classmates are all like, yeah, she told us that. He told us that. <laughs> okay. They, Carry on. They, uh, they moved to D.C., which oh, Nora hated. Really? Yeah, she didn't like D.C. at all. It was a little too... Pro- she's a New Yorker. She, yeah, yeah, it was too provincial. And she's not loving D.C., but she has a baby, Jacob, and she loved Jacob uncontrollably. She became pregnant again in 1979, but for this part, we need to take a trip across the pond. Oh, and a little bit back in time. Thank you. Thank you. Look at that. Okay, so let's say this part begins <laughs> in 1961 Okay, in London-ish, when a young civil servant named Peter Jay got married. He was the child of two Labor Party politicians. Okay, I have no idea where the fuck this is going. I'm intrigued. As was his new wife, Margaret. Okay. Actually, I'm not sure it was both her parents, but her father definitely... Uh, later, Margaret became a producer at the BBC and then a journalist and presenter. Okay. And Peter joined her in broadcasting in the early 70s and anchored a weekend news show. Great. Okay. They had three children together, 
And over the years, they watched as Margaret's father, James Callaghan, rose through the ranks of both the Labour Party and the UK government. Who the hell is James Callaghan? Well, (laughs) he has held all four of the major posts in the UK government. He was the Chancellor of the Exchequer. What? Then he was the Home Secretary. Then he was the Foreign Secretary. And in 1976, he became Prime Minister of the United (laughs) Kingdom. No way! He did. (laughs) Here is a fun fact for our UK listeners. Uh, I realized when I was researching this that I had never actually heard of James Callaghan. And my guess is that if you asked any number of Americans who was prime minister before Margaret Thatcher, they would answer with absolute confidence (laughs) that it was Winston Churchill. (laughs) All the time. Okay, so Callahan was prime minister from 1976 to 1979. And while his government was not especially effective, one notable thing that happened under it occurred in 1977. What was that? A 40-year-old Peter Jay who had no background in politics and no background in diplomacy, was appointed to be the United Kingdom's ambassador to the United States of America. What? Peter Jay, husband of Margaret Jay, the prime minister's daughter, with no background in any of the relevant disciplines, was appointed to become the United Kingdom's ambassador to its most important strategic ally in the world. Why? Peter Jay, who was married to the Prime Minister's daughter and was good friends with the Foreign Secretary, is the one who appoints those. In any case, it was a nepotism appointment, Alicia. It was a nepotism appointment, and it was controversial, and it caused problems. Okay, so off they hop. Jolly old Washington, D.C. So, picture the scene. Nora Ephron and Carl Bernstein are celebrated journalists, writers, and D.C. party people. And two journalists-slash-diplomats arrive from London. Staying alive. Margaret J. was lanky and blonde, the daughter of the Prime Minister and the wife of the British Ambassador, a product of excellent breeding. Carl was a college dropout who'd made a wild success of his life purely on grit, and he was a charismatic womanizer in an uneasy remission on account of his marriage. Surely... Surely nothing's going to go wrong. Boy, does it go wrong. So Carl became <laughs> quite enamored of Margaret J. No. And in 1979, the pair commenced an affair. Nope. That would ultimately end his marriage, alter the direction of his life. Nope. And send his soon-to-be ex-wife's career into overdrive. Nobody. So Nora became aware of the affair Late summer of 79. Okay. She was pregnant with their second child. Reporting at the time, because she was not quiet about it, she called up Liz Smith, gossip columnist. Yeah. And gave her the item, Carl Bernstein and Nora Ephron call it quits. No. Oh, 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 oh. She She was not giving herself any wiggle room. She's done. Yeah, she was done. She... Went into labor six weeks early with their son. Oh, God. um, Who is fine, by the way. Great. Both of the kids are fine. Okay. So reporting at the time described the Jays' marriage as uh, relaxed, you know. That British aristocracy British fucking bedrooms mm -hmm. behind each other's backs. Yes, not unlike the Parker Bowleses and other British elites. Please see our Royals episode from season one. Yeah. 
People oh. magazine talked to a British reporter who said, I think this illustrates the difference between us British and you Americans. We have our little affairs, but we certainly don't wreck our marriages. I mean, sometimes you do. Well, that said, Peter J. proceeded to have an affair of his own. Oh, God, with who? With the nanny. No! Which produced a child. No! And they didn't get divorced for another 15 years. I'm so sorry you just have to equalize the sound on that, but what? Yeah. Hold on, I didn't hear. Who didn't get divorced for 15 years? The Jays, Margaret and Peter Jay. Jesus Christ. Until the mid-80s. <gasps> Nora grabs the kids and heads back to New York to stay with her editor for several months. And, I mean, she was devastated, and she was heartbroken, and she was scared, and she was confused, and she was broke, but she did what she had always done. She wrote through it with humor, with incisive wit, and by letting herself be the hero of her story. So the resulting book, Heartburn, where the hamster story is, yeah, documents the marriage and its demise with thinly veiled characterizations of Carl. His name is Mark Feldman, notes M.F., Oh. So in the subsequent movie, he was played by Jack Nicholson. Also, if you watch the movie, you're going to want to mute it and all the scenes where they're eating because there is something weird with the mouth noises there that shouldn't be. I don't know if that's a Jack Nicholson thing or a Carl Bernstein thing. All right. So thinly veiled characterizations of Carl, of Margaret J. Her character name is Thelma Rice in the book and movie. And of Nora Ephron herself, who in the film was played by Meryl Streep. So the book became a bestseller. Movie rights sold, and then it became a movie, and all of it became a sticking point in the five-and-a-half-year-long divorce between <gasps> Carl and Nora. Before I get into that, <laughs> let's do some. Let's get some color from the book. Here is how Nora described the Thelma Rice character patterned after Margaret J. Oh, I can't wait. A fairly tall person with a neck as long as an arm... And a nose as long as a thumb. And you should see her legs, never mind her feet, which are sort of splayed. Splayed. She describes Mark Feldman, you know, her husband, as, quote, capable of having sex with a Venetian blind. Oh, Jesus Christ, you're kidding! (laughs) (gasps) Nope. So, Mike Nichols directed the 1986 movie based on the screenplay that she herself adapted. Make the Nick. But Carl spent years trying to prevent the film from being made at all. He argued really? mm-hmm, He argued that their kids would suffer harm as a result of the publicity around the film. Maybe you should have thought about the harm you were going to make them suffer before you started sleeping around with yeah. splayed leggy blonde. Yeah, so realistically, uh, yeah, he didn't want his reputation trashed any more than it had been. But like, hey, bucko, maybe if you don't want to look like a shithead, you don't act like a shithead. Welcome to the world you created. Just a thought. Again, the affair was in 79. In the summer of 1985, the divorce between Carl Bernstein and Nora Ephron finally... Is the affair still going on? I don't think so. So the affair is done and over with, and the divorce takes, like, oh, legit also, takes... Yeah, and I said earlier that they didn't divorce for, like, 15 years. That the Jays didn't divorce for, like, 50, but they divorced in 86, so whatever. Okay, so the divorce is taking as long for them as the divorce is taking for the Bernsteins. I don't think that the Jays started their divorce for... Yikes. ...quite a long time. But in any case, for... For the Efron Bernstein family, it took, yeah, five and a half years. Wow. And here's, here's why. 
<laughs> the the final just wait, it gets worse. The final divorce <laughs> agreement had to be signed off on by Paramount Pictures and Mike Nichols. What? Because what? Mm-hmm, they had to sign the divorce agreement because it included all of this stuff. Like Carl was given the right to preview drafts of the script for the movie. Holy shit. He was given the right to see an early cut of the film. He was given the right to submit concerns. And the studio <laughs> the studio agreed to be sensitive to his concerns. Additionally, quote, the father in the movie Heartburn will be portrayed at all times as a caring, loving, and conscientious father in any screenplay prepared or executed with Nora's name attached to it. Because I'm sure that's totally true. I mean, she agreed that it was true for the purposes of getting the movie made. I I mean, it may be true. He could be a fantastic dad. I don't know. Not a good husband. (laughs) At least not not at this point in his life. Nora also agreed not to write about Bernstein or their family any further and to put some of the profits from the film into a trust for the kids. Uh, Okay, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. So it was this five and a half year long ordeal, but it spanned a time period where, when Nora was increasingly moving like out of journalism and into screenwriting, like her parents. So she and co-writer Alice Arlen had been nominated for Best Original Screenplay for 1983's Silkwood, starring uh, Meryl Streep. Really? Another Mike Nichols joint. No way. Um, mm-hmm. She wrote a draft of All the President's Men, but it was not the one that was used. But that was... She'd been edging her toe in the water. She's- She's a badass, dude. She's a badass. Okay. The movie Heartburn came out in 1986 while she was working on the script for a little film called When Harry Met Sally, which came out in 1989. 1987, she marries for the third time, and this one works. Yay. This is to screenwriter Nick Pileggi, author of mob movies like Goodfellas, and by all accounts, they were incredibly happy. Really? Aw. Yep. I love a I love a trashy divorces happy ending. This is amazing. Yeah. All right, so she was also learning to direct films during this period. She and her sister Delia adapted the novel This Is Your Life by Meg Walliser for her 1992 directorial debut, This Is My Life, which reportedly is the film that made Lena Dunham want to make films. Oh, nice. Um, Sleepless in Seattle followed in 1993, yeah. Oscar nominated, pretty sure. Oh, um, it's a good movie. You've Got Mail in 1998, and uh, Julie and Julia in 2009. Okay, so, well, it gets sad here, so oh, no. sorry about that. But as noted, you know, Nora Ephron has passed from this world. She died in 2012 from complications from acute myeloid leukemia, which she was diagnosed with in 06. It was technically mm. um, pneumonia that killed her, but she'd been undergoing chemo oh, like, wow. at the time, so... Anyway, she held that diagnosis very, very close, and few in her massive circle of friends like knew that she was sick. She Everything kept working. Everything was not copy. Right. Which is sort of what the documentary is. Oh, wow. Like, I mean, the son knew, obviously, but yeah, there's sort of the question, like, that story was not copy. So, as for Carl Bernstein... I have a really hard time thinking about his post-Watergate career without comparing it to Bob Woodward's post-Watergate career. So Talk to me. Bernstein obviously has continued to write articles and books, and he's made the transition to television and, you know. But 
Bob Woodward pops out these era-defining first draft of history tomes every few years. Yeah, you hear about them. Yeah. In all, Woodward has authored or co-authored 13 number one nonfiction bestsellers. Wow. Bernstein has published six books, two of which are with Woodward. (laughs) On the other hand, unlike Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein has dated Bianca Jagger, Martha Stewart, Elizabeth Taylor. No way. And in 2003, he also married for the third time a former model named Christine Kubek. Oh. So friends of the, you know, Efron Bernstein former couple say that, you know, the way that Nora kind of flipped the script by just Reynolds pamphleting him. Yeah. Yeah. Like really stung him for a very, very long time, particularly with the unflattering big screen production. Uh, Hey, get over your fragile white male fragility. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's rough though that in the documentary, someone says, you know, that feeling that people are talking about you, like he just couldn't escape that for years. Hey, you know how to avoid that? (laughs) Don't cheat on your spouse. Don't cheat on your famous writer's spouse. So um, their kids are doing incredibly well, as mentioned. Uh, Jacob Bernstein has been on staff at the New York Times since 2013. And prior to that was at the Daily Beast, W, and Women's Wear Daily. And he created the 2016 documentary, Everything is Copy, that I cried through last night and you were worried. I, I did get a little... You had a lot of feelings. It was it was good. Max yeah. Max Bernstein is a guitarist and keyboard player who was part of uh, Taylor Swift's touring band on the... T-Swift? Repu- what? Reputation tour last year. Nice. And finally, I know this is the part you've been waiting for. <laughs> I think I've been <laughs> waiting for all of it. <laughs> oh, <clears throat> Charles. Margaret J. today. Oh, no. Is Margaret J. Baroness J. of Paddington. Paddington? P A D D? Mm hmm. Okay. Like the bear. Like the bear. <laughs> <laughs> she and Peter did ultimately divorce in 1986. Sure. She remarried in 1994. Notably, she helped pass through a reform of the House of Lords in 1999 that removed the hereditary right to seats in that body. Smashing the patriarchy! Big deal. What? This had been a long-term goal of the Labour and Liberal parties because the House of Lords tended to stop progressive legislation because they were all old rich fuckers. On the other hand, Baroness J of Paddington once said that she really got rural voters in England because she had a little cottage in the country, which in fact was a 500,000 pound Irish manse. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> On the other hand, she was really active with HIV AIDS charities and oh, other healthcare charities. So that is the Baroness J of Paddington. Paddington. To close, I want to give a strong recommend to Everything is Copy, which is available on Amazon Prime, and share one anecdote of many from it that made me laugh. So apparently Efron was a pretty tough director, and just she just didn't, she didn't do bullshit, right? Like, she just- She's the Amy Klobuchar. In her life. Like, she just didn't do bullshit. And so if someone- appreciate that. Was not delivering, she was merciless in replacing them. Out. So when they were casting Sleepless in Seattle- Oh, no. The young actor they hired to play Tom Hanks' son, Aww. the kid who sets the whole story the in motion like by calling, seven-year-old? calling the radio station to say his dad needs a new wife, whatever, 
this little kid actor, he goes through this fairly grueling audition process and they're working with them and they're motion picture. Yeah. Yeah. And like, he's doing great and the whole cast loves him and everything's awesome. And then he gets in a room with Tom Hanks and he freezes and he cannot act. Oh no. Is this Tom Hanks? I guess. Tom Hanks is interviewed in the documentary and obviously as the eminently nice guy that he is. He's so nice. He's just like, whoo, man, when she came and told me, she didn't ask me, what do you think if we replace so-and-so? She just said, listen, we're making a change. It's not working out. And I said, you're going to fire the kid? You're going to fire the kid? And she did. Oh, God. That was amazing. <laughs> yeah. So we are we doing trash can Do ratings? Do you need to take a breath? That was fun. How many trash cans for Carl Bernstein and okay. Nora Ephron? So for Nora Ephron, I feel like I'm not sure if she deserves any at all as this was sort of thrust upon her. Sure. But okay. I would say Carl, his wife was seven months pregnant. I would say Carl Bernstein gets a, at least four that that's that's so like Denise Richards, Nora Ephron gets a halo rating, even withstanding her firing of seven year olds. Yeah, I don't know if she gets a halo. Yeah, firing yeah, like, seven year old. Yeah. Okay, so the total complete divorce of the two of them, it took seven years, like six years. Five, yeah, five and a half. Yeah, he. That's at least a three. Yeah, yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. Like I four, four and a half, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Archie and Agatha. Yeah. Dude, I don't know. Master of bad timing. She would have died. Dude, <laughs> she disappeared for 11 days. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm, fuck you. Here's mm-hmm. my chicken leg. Mm-hmm. No. That that trashy, like, super happy love story ending. Yeah. Total halos on the end. But as trashy divorces go in England, that was like a four and a half. Yeah. In 1928. That was big oh, damn yeah. news. I, yeah. That seems right. So we're both, yeah, we got a couple four and a halfers here. Language or the kiss. Lady writers doing it. Honestly, like, I only wish that, because everybody else in the story about Nora Ephron, I guess except her mother, but like everybody else in the story is alive. And I, that is how I wish that the story, I, I wish I was just giving you an update of her current projects. I, she's missed. Yeah. Yeah. Phenomenal writer, phenomenal talent, Hero. phenomenal voice. Yep. Hero. Heroine. I think you know. Why you got to gender it? <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> we'll be back next week with more trashy so divorces. Many trashy divorces. Hmm. In the meantime, what are you going to do? Go to Disney World? No. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a football team in the South. Keep it trashy? Yeah, you are. I'm going to stay single and not get married to any oh of these fuckers. God. Yeah, good call. Okay. Cheers, y'all. <laughs> Bye. See you next week. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com 
or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.